Fred Crochelle is one of the most positive, encouraging, and charming people I know. He led the sales team at the work group at Sony Music while I was an assistant for the product management team. He graciously wrote my business school references, and then he went on to be GM at Madonna's Maverick Records. During my second year at school, he spoke at the media and entertainment conference I produced and blew people's minds when he gave a sneak peek at Madonna's new song, Music. Don't just chase the money. The money will come if you're really doing what you love and you're successful. Everything that you ever want in life will come to you. Welcome to the Mentor DNA Podcast. I'm your host, Mish Pierce. And I welcome you to drop in as I talk to my C-suite friends about what makes them tick, lessons they've learned through their successes and failures, and memories we share through the decades spent growing up in our careers. Mentor DNA is your backstage pass to learning from these inspirational leaders. Thanks for tuning in. How the heck are you? I'm great. Busy. Busy, you know. That's good though. It is. We love that. always busy. Yes. I think, I don't know what you would do. Like you can't really retire. How would you ever retire? Never, never retire. Yeah. I love, I love it too much, you know, as Herb Alpert, who called me on my birthday two days ago, really, I told him I'm never going to retire. And he says, retire, like retire from what life? <laughs> 86 years old, still, you know, pre pandemic was playing 50, 60 shows a year traveling unbelievable has enough money to retire 20 times over but plays his trumpet sculpts and uh paints every day those are important things to keep your brain going you know yeah yeah absolutely this is what i'm doing to keep my brain going (laughs) you know i started in the record business uh when i was 19 years old and uh You know, it all began by the love of music, of course, and spending all of my money at the record store each week, uh, whatever I had on me. It was actually 45 years ago this October uh, that I walked into the store and they were hiring at Warehouse Records in San Mateo, California, home of Tom Brady, right? Uh, They were hiring for Christmas help. And I go, I love music. Now I can make the money here and spend it all in the same place. And, uh, you know, I never turned back. Um, I really entered into it with, you know, a love, appreciation and wanting to learn um, because I loved it so much. And Christmas came and went. Uh, There were employees that were let go and the manager uh, at the time said, you're not going anywhere. Yeah, you know, not surprisingly, because, Freddie's because, not going anywhere. Uh, because I had wanted to learn everything, ordering and returns and all this stuff that people didn't want to do. Um, record store jobs in the 70s were kind of a in and out thing for a lot of uh, teenagers. But I stuck with it and, you know, worked retail in the San Francisco Bay Area extensively uh, for about seven or eight years then got an opportunity to come to work for CBS Records and worked at CBS Records slash Sony Music for 12 and a half years, various positions, which I'm sure we'll get into today. Then I had the opportunity of a lifetime uh, to come to work for uh, Madonna 
in Freddie DeMann in 1996, which was a pivotal moment for me um, because uh, I felt like, um, you know, they really got me. I really got them. It was a smaller organization uh, that had tremendous success. And I was able to build the team that I wanted. And a lot of people that you know, you know, really, it was a magical time uh, there while I was at Maverick. And then, um, and you know, you my GM there, right? You were the I GM. was GM there. Yeah. Okay. So a uh, general manager at a record label uh, has, you know, the sales department, marketing department, radio promotion, publicity, creative services, all that reported to me. And snapshot is I was uh, responsible for hiring, firing, and uh, overseeing 30 to $35 million a year in uh, marketing monies and ensuring that we were profitable. Because if we were not profitable, uh, then I wasn't getting a you know, bonus, but uh, it really worked out. And, you know, without getting very specific, we always had a number one record. Uh, we didn't release more than 10 records a year. And when I worked with you, you know, in the Sony system, we were used to more of a conveyor belt of releases, you know, 20, uh, 20, you know, or so a month. So I went to Maverick. Uh, my life kind of changed during that time. And then um, I left at the end of 2002, started my own company, Crochelle Entertainment Group, in 2003. And here we are, 18 years later, and uh, we are a management company and a marketing company. And it's taking the know-how of how labels do things, and all that background, marketing and sales, you know, radio promotion, all the other elements besides the actual making of the music uh, to help a lot of artists uh, start their own label and uh, where they can be the driver in the, in the, uh, uh, in the car, wow. own and control all their music, et cetera. Fantastic. And what better way to work with an, a seasoned executive like you and your team to create your own label, right? So, uh, so who are some of the who are some of the artists who you currently work with? Well, I want to clarify that because a lot of people go your label. And no, I mean, uh, I mean they the yeah. artist's label, right? Yes. What we do is is very unique. Um but Jackson Brown, for example, um, for 16 years, we helped him start his label, Inside Recordings. And uh, it's been very great for him and for us, long relationship. Uh, Herb Alpert of, you know, a &M Records fame. So and uh, certainly Tijuana Brass and little known fact to a lot of people in today's world, Herb actually sold more records than the Beatles in 1965 and 66 here in the United States. But wow. just a, a brilliant man, an incredible artist. And uh, we feel blessed to work with him. And, you know, other artists that I'll just name that we've helped establish their own label, uh, Collective Soul, Filter, Everlast, Blind Melon, Smokey Robinson, 
And we also help independent labels that maybe don't have the ex experience and expertise. You know, we're, we're, you know, in and out of some of these artists, you know, for example, we've helped over the last 10 years, Bonnie Raitt with the launch of her uh, label, Red Wing Records and her team, she's got a, an incredible team and they usually activate us a few months prior to release and then post release. So, you know, I don't ever want to confine a, an artist to having to have to use us, you know, all the time, X, you know, Y, Z. It, it really kind of fluctuates artist by artist by what their needs are. Right. And so was that a retail gig that you took when you were 19? Was that your first job? What was your first job? My first job was actually driving a truck uh, for a print shop. Okay. And I drove all over the Bay Area uh, for this printer. I remember, you know, delivering everything from, you know, uh, tickets for the boat cruises at Fisherman's Wharf to delivering, you know, beautiful invitations to Bing Crosby's house. It was, it was, uh, you know, wild and adventurous. And it was all about making some money as a teenager. Wow, that's great. So I have so many fantastic memories working with you. I was just wondering, do you have a fun memory. I'll share mine after you share yours, but do you have a okay. fun memory of us working together? I do. And it stands <laughs> out and I, you know, I will take it with me to my grave, you know, um, uh, Barbara, who I think is one of your other guests on the podcast, uh, who I worked with, not just within the Sony system, but I brought her over to be my head of marketing at Maverick when I was right. at Maverick as well. But uh, it was one night and um, you, Barbara, and I uh, never looked at a time clock, which meant we just worked after hours and everybody was kind of, you know, gone. And we turned up the stereo and there was a great soundtrack. And on that soundtrack, Stevie Wonder, okay, <laughs> signed, sealed, delivered. And we ended up just, you know, I mean, in the day of YouTube now, we should have filmed it, but we were dancing, we were singing. It was, you know, it was like eight o'clock at night. Nobody was around in the Santa Monica offices. Right. And we laughed and laughed until, you know, my, oh my face gosh. hurt. Well, and that's the same memory I was going to share. And actually there's a reason why you put that song on. And it's because I was applying to business school and you had written some of my recommendations for me so for some of these schools and I had just found out that I'd gotten in and so you were like hold on I've got the perfect song for this <laughs> and that was back in the day of you know having millions of CDs in your office and yes we all had each of the executives had these massive sound systems and you turned it up to volume 11 and we were just dancing around and that was such a great memory and laughing and so happy you know <laughs> And then some other memories that I have were outside of the office, which we played softball. You were a team captain of the Sony music softball team, yeah. the Bush league team. And we would play, we would play other entertainment companies. Like who did we even play? I don't even remember. I just remember playing and it was so much fun. Yeah. I, you know, I'm a firm believer in work hard, play hard and playing hard, uh, you know, is the things that you can do to get to know each other 
inside and out, outside of the office. So, yeah. you know, sports came into that for me, you know, uh, still does. Um, but, you know, whether it be family barbecues over the house, whether it be, you know, playing sports together, it, it's all about building that camaraderie, that team, mm -hmm. so that people don't, you know, uh, feel like anyone is less than another. Uh, people don't take a look at the clock. Oh, it's five o'clock. I got to leave right. uh, because they don't like their job. Uh, they really have a, a sense of vestment. They want to succeed. They want to have goals together. Right. And, you know, so that's just kind of an overall philosophy. Yeah. Well, and I learned, I learned that from you and from playing on that team, I realized, wow, you know, relationships are a so important. We had something really special at Sony when we were there at the work group, uh, but B that relationships can and should be nurtured outside of the office. And it's so important to really try to do that for your teams so that they can get to know each other. Because once you hit crisis, you really need to make sure everyone has each other's backs and they're all rowing in the same direction. And what better way to do it with sports, right? Uh, absolutely. You know, yeah. um, I know that, you know, a lot of people think about how do you, you build the team and how do you think about that? It was something very much in my mind when I went to CBS and started ascending the ladder, going up the ladder and watching and observing a lot of executives, uh, a lot of bad habits and a lot of good habits. Uh, the bad habits I always felt um, was really an arrogance of, of separation that, uh, and there was, you know, once again, it's, it's not everybody. I don't wanna make it sound very general, uh, but there were some really bad examples within the Sony music system. Uh, it was all about them and, uh, uh, you know, executives that would never even, you know, look at an assistant or address right. an assistant. And, you know, I didn't like that. Right. I wanted to be the 180 from that. Right. And, uh, and you were, you know, and Hey, you know, whether it be security guys or what have you, you're all invited to my house. Yeah. You yeah. know? Fantastic. Well, there's a, another really fun memory that I have. So when I went to business school is when you shifted over to Maverick. And yes. my second year in business school in the spring, I was in charge of the media and entertainment conference. And I found this fantastic venue on Penn's campus uh, or off campus, the Mask and Wig Clubhouse. And that's an all male comedy group. And they, they do all their own, you know, materials. And a lot of those guys go on to become, you know, writers for SNL. They're you know, really clever people. And so we had this conference there and there you were on the panel and we had, you pulled out, it wasn't even out yet. Um, Madonna's new album was coming out and you're like, oh, have I got something for you? And you played her new song, Music. And it was like people's heads were exploding in the audience because they were like, how did you, A, how did you get this panel of amazing people together? And B, he just played us the song before it actually coming out. So thank you. I love that. That's You're always that's... so supportive. Who else was in, on that panel? You remember it was Rennie, Steve Rennie. Yeah, Steve Rennie. Um, 
there was Dave Johnson, who was, right. I think, head of legal counsel at Sony. Um, Marty Diamond, one of the premier agents still to this day. There was a gentleman out of Philly that ran, uh, I want to say like Rough House Records. Rough House Records, yeah. Was it I don't Chris remember. Schwartz or something like that? I don't remember. I don't remember yeah. the name, but yeah. But it was a really like- good panel, a really fun Uh, you know, great conversation. And, you know, I still will speak at UCLA or, or what have you, especially, you know, pre pandemic. Right. But, uh, I love the energy from the students, you know, people that really want to listen and learn. Um, it really inspires me. Absolutely. Yeah. So what's the one thing you feel you have to do every single day? Otherwise you feel unprepared. Yeah, it is really all about preparation for me. And I'm a little bit OCD like that. So my desk, everything is organized, Um, you know, my calendar, but I get up very early still, you know, I love it so much um, because the music business is just never going to be that conveyor belt of shoes. It's different dynamic situations. It's different personalities, Mm -hmm. some good, some bad. But you just go into every day where it's going to be new, exciting. So knowing that it's going to be an ever-changing landscape each day, I have to be super organized Mm -hmm. on what my day looks like, what questions could come up. Um, Because if you're really super prepared going into anything, then when something runs adrift, a curveball comes your way you're more in position to handle it. Hmm. So I've always liked to stay ahead of the game like that, take a look, uh, really, you know, do my homework before each Zoom now (laughs) or a conference call or meeting with an artist to really have all the facts. And, you know, for me, it's really, when you're talking about a strategic marketing plan, you are dealing with everything that could be a radio plan consumer advertising, streaming, and what your strategies are for attacking streaming, conversations with Spotify and Apple, and the list goes on. So it's a lot of extensive notes. And anybody who's worked with me (laughs) or in the last 30 years, 40 years, they know that I'm a stickler for staying organized and being on top of it. One of my most uh, known sayings is don't be a clown, write it down. And I got that from one of uh, my mentors, Jack Chase, who I worked with in the Dallas branch of Sony Music. You know, it's really trying to really, if you love your job, you want to stay on top of your game. And if you are a professional athlete, the very best of them go out and they warm up before anybody else and they stay after, you know, so. So I'd actually like to take a little detour because you have a lot of connections in the professional athlete world, or you did. I remember going to your house and you, you had as many gold records and platinum records as you did signed jerseys. How did that come about? I think it was when you lived in Texas and you, you just, you love football, if I'm not mistaken, or is it all? Yeah. Well, it's, uh, if you take a look at history and cultural things, the sports world, 
along with the music world and entertainment world yeah. interweaves. You know, I, I can't tell you how many athletes that I've met that just are, they're so enamored with the music business hmm. and they wish they were in the music business. And then how many other executives, because it is my second love is, is sports to music, but how many music executives are enamored with sports so right. they want to be there. So that connection kind of came to in Texas, where I was the sales manager for the Sony Music Branch and, you know, got to know a lot of the executives at some of the sports teams, which enabled me to be on the field for NFL games, Oh my gosh. Uh, you know, to meet all the baseball players, the basketball players, actually fly on the team planes, things like that that, you know, as a kid, you want to talk about, about dream moments. Oh it was like, wow. And all what? they wanted to know about was, you know, what's Madonna's next record going to be like, or what's Michael Jackson like, or things like that, you know? And your personality, and I'm sure people can even just feel it through this conversation, is so dynamic. There are a handful of people, my husband is the same way, where when Fred Kershaw walks in the room, the energy changes. It absolutely does. You're so positive and you're such a smiling, happy person that- You're making me blush, you no, know. No, well, There's red, red noise coming out of the podcast <laughs> right now, you know. It's true. When you walk in the room, I don't think anyone would get invited to be on the sidelines or to fly on the team plane or do these things if it weren't for the fact that you were a super positive, high integrity type of person. And so well, I, th you. I think that speaks volumes to who you are. And I learned a lot about that social dynamic through you and how you interacted. Because you're right. You weren't the executive that wouldn't talk to the interns. You wanted to make sure they were learning. You would invite them into meetings. Hey, take notes. Write it down. Don't be a clown. <laughs> Write it down. Right. And so those well, are I, special memories for me. I think part of team building is that investment in people. And I got as much out of that as maybe they got out of me, but so, so important because if I look, especially in the music business, which everyone always refers to as it's really a small business and you're like one degree separated, you know, I want to have that reputation, right? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the people that I don't want to say worked beneath me, I want to say worked with me right? Mm -hmm. Have graduated to do great things. I'm talking about really great things. And, you know, they'll still take my call, you yeah. know, yeah. and uh, a lot of them are in positions of power within the business. And it just, you know, it makes, makes me feel great. Well, and I remember I was at, you know, a really random it was a random marketing project that you were willing to take a risk on. It was with Elliot Yamin. Yes. I was at a company called Catalina Marketing. And that company basically is the database of all the shopping transactions at grocery and now at pharmacy. And we printed those custom coupons. So you're like, how did they know I liked Coca-Cola, right? So we did this bizarre campaign Right we on the receipt tape, wasn't right it? On, not on the receipt tape. It's a special custom print. So it's a separate printer in the retail store. And so it was like, buy two packages of lettuce and get a free Elliot Yamin download. And that was unusually successful, wasn't it? 
It really was. You know, you have to take some risks in this business. And I didn't feel like it was a big risk. It was either going to, you know, uplift and, and what have you, but it was very successful. And we had everything going. And as far as an independent record, you know, it debuted at number three on the Billboard charts, on the album charts. You know, for that year, it was the biggest selling independent album. We sold over a half a million independently. Oh um, well, it's from all those lettuce purchases. That's, clearly. You know, yeah. I mean, people got to eat, right? So, <laughs> well, what was interesting was in that particular, it was sort of an unusual marketing trial. But what the lettuce company wanted to do is they wanted to encourage people to, instead of buying one, they wanted to encourage people to buy two. And this was the incentive. And they even said, oh my gosh, that was highly successful. We didn't anticipate it having such a high, you know, because with those barcodes, you can track every single thing that was redeemed, every coupon that was redeemed. And they were like, wow, I think the redemption was like, it was crazy. It was like 8%, wasn't it? It was crazy high. It was, it was off the charts. Yeah. yeah. It was, yeah. it was literally three to four times anything that, right. you know, we would have thought, you know, it was in tandem with a great radio team, great video and all yeah. of this. And not to mention the artists. Um, the artist was on board because uh, Elliot, his whole life, he's suffered from uh, really bad diabetes. So very health conscious. It was pushing the proper message at the same time. Yeah. Good memories. Yeah. I mean, if it was fun. candy bars, probably not so much, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Has there been a distinctive inflection point in your career? Would you say it was Maverick? Yes. Because, you know, I had been 12 and a half years within the CBS slash Sony music system. And, um, you know, for those that don't know, Sony music has been Sony music since 87, but I started there in 84 to, you know, CBS sold to Sony at that time in 87. So that's why I refer to it as CBS and Sony, but going up the ladder there, uh, just the size the magnitude of that company, and it's still, you know, an extremely large company, one of the big three that, you know, look at there's, there's good habits and there's bad habits. Like I said, I really tried to absorb soap in as much as I could uh, listen to a lot of people that have been doing it and really kind of define myself by that. The things right. that I would take that I wanted to apply that I thought were very positive. And then, you know, like the belittling or tormenting or what have you that I saw in some marketing meetings that was really detrimental. I said, no, yeah. I'm not going to do that. You know? Yeah. So, I think that's, it's sort of, I, I don't think people, well, maybe, maybe people outside the industry don't or do know, I'm not sure, but there is this undercurrent, you know, even if you start at an agency, you know, and you start in the mailroom that you're just going to have to suck it up because there are 50 million people right behind you who are willing to take this gig and not make that much money. And so I'm going to sit here and mistreat you because yeah. I can. It no, just was bad. No. bad I vote now. I right. vote now. I vote right. now. But getting back to the, the timing, because everything in your career you know, you kind of build for that next move. Right. So, so with me, Maverick, as that changer, 
was going from this big system, doing very well, I think, in that system and having the opportunity to go to a very small label that really needed some experience, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had Freddie DeMann uh, was a long time and still is, you know, just a brilliant guy, but a long time music executive. Beyond that, everybody else was pretty fresh and new in the game. Right. And so I was able to come in and at first, wow, you know, the guy that wears a suit and tie, because at Sony, we were always the guys that were always dressed up. But I came in and and there was, you know, work ethic changes and and systems put in place. And I'll never forget one of the best compliments I got was about six months or so after I came on, one of the executive or one of the owners said, wow, you know, I, I can't believe it. You know, I got here kind of early and everybody was here. And I, <laughs> and I pulled them aside and I said, well, when I got here, uh, people were showing up at like 10, 1030. Hey man, it's the music business, you know, Hey, shows late last night, whatever. And I sat down with everybody and I said, here's the story. Do you want to win? And everybody's like, yeah, we want to win. I go, you see that I've, I gotten here every day, like seven o'clock, right? I say, yeah. Well, I'm going to have you understand why that is, okay? The people that I was working with before, Columbia Records, right? They're on the East Coast. You got to remember those people are the competition, right? Atlantic Records, all these labels that are based in there. When you come in at 1030, they're already back from lunch. They're on the flip side of the day. And they're staying that they have that big of a head start. So all of a sudden it started connecting with people and they started going, yeah, I want to win. I got to get in early. And they started feeling that worth themselves, Mm -hmm. not because I was telling them I presented to them, but then I let them take it and own it. Sorry to go off on that tangent a little bit, but no, I mean, I remember when I was when I was in my early career and we would go to the shows, get home at like midnight, but I always made sure I was in before Barbara and Tina always, always, because as soon as they get in, the phones are ringing off the hook and you've got to be there to support your team. And that was my role. I was answering like a hundred calls an hour. Yes, you were. Yes, you were. (laughs) That was, you know, pre-email and crazy, crazy times. But going there it was respect was part of it. Uh, it was a smaller operation and I, I could make a change quicker. Well, and it was artist driven, right? Really artist driven because Madonna herself is an artist. And so that focus was probably very different than coming from a big, I mean, I would consider a Sony music, you know, Columbia Epic, uh, you know, those types of labels, it's almost like an investment bank, right? They're investing in a hundred bands for the hopes that one hits. Exactly. Whereas Maverick felt a lot more organic, a lot more about the artist. Well, I think we did have a brand identity, even yeah. with the consumer out there about that. Yeah. Uh, the things that we were releasing were cool culturally, right? Mm-hmm. 
And where I had come from a place, you had come from a place at Sony Music, where because there is so much that you can't get so attached for an elongated period of time, meaning a new artist goes to radio, three, four weeks later, it's not really working. Hate to say it, but the truth is next. Yeah. And at Maverick, because we did not have that many records that we were releasing on a yearly basis, and because we were artist driven, if it wasn't going to be radio, we had to find the path that was up to us. So that place actually made me a better marketer, made me think about things a lot deeper Mm -hmm. um, because if somebody wasn't going to get played, if you had to go over the wall, under the wall, around the wall, you had to figure it out because as those bigger labels have, we didn't have the opportunity to go, okay, it's not working three weeks later. Next, we had to figure it out. Uh, You had to to persevere. You had to really have tenacity on each artist and you signed them for a reason. You just have to tweak it a little bit and see what's going to work, which is very similar to a business plan these days. You have to tweak and cr- keep iterating. Yes, absolutely. Deftones uh, was a great example because, you know, they would tour. There was a great consumer reaction anywhere they went, but could not get arrested at radio. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was the time of MTV and all that. No love, no love until the third record because culturally the swell of their fan base, their foundation mm-hmm. was growing in those first two records. You know, yeah. the first record, I remember a lot of people saying, hey, you know, you've sold 50,000 records, be happy, have them go record again, da, da, da. And we were like, no, man, they, they go out there on the road, they keep selling and selling. Yeah. So we ended up, you know, closing out that first record instead of 50,000, 250,000 and was never on the billboard charts, um, but just sustaining. Yeah. And then the second record came out and they debuted at like 29 on the billboard chart and everybody didn't see that coming. We sold half a million, Mm. still not really accepted at radio. Not, none of that third record though. They do debut at three. They almost sell 200,000 in the first week. And uh, that one sold about 1.3 million. So, you know, once again, sticking with it, sticking with it. And their fans are supporters to this day. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I listened to that podcast that you did with Woody, which is all about the Deftones. What a great interview that was. Oh, thank Um, you. So what's the craziest thing you've ever heard, either in a boardroom or in a meeting? What did you learn from it? Well, I hate to bring back the intimidation type thing, and I won't even name names, you know, at the time Columbia Records and, you know, the marketing meetings could be very intimidating all unto themselves. And that made me be an even better preparer, uh, as I was talking about earlier. But I I saw the worst example, which was, somebody being berated directly in front of 50 of their colleagues to the point of them breaking down and crying. We're talking about adults here. We're talking about somebody that would get sick to the point where they 
didn't even want to go to work on Wednesdays. Right. To me, that's unacceptable. How about that? It's unacceptable. So <laughs> I just, you know, once again decided, boy, I'm never going to act any way like that if I have an issue with somebody. And to this day, I pull them aside. That's my conversation with them. And it's certainly not in an intimidating fashion. But, you know, it really struck me that why do people act like that? And I think it's, it's a real flaw in those that want to be great leaders. Right. And I think you need to go in knowing that you need to fan the flames of your people, support them, and have them take risks, have them try new things. Right. And that you have to understand that there is going to be failure, mm -hmm. but it's not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. And they're going to learn through that. But so many people are like, oh, you made a mistake. Oh, you're done. Oh, done. you know, right. You can't do that and nurture people's careers. You right. can't build a team that way. You cannot do it. Yeah. I remember sitting downstairs in Columbia and hearing an executive screaming upstairs. I could hear it all the way downstairs. Yeah. And I, and I knew those who were getting screamed at, and I'd say like, oh my gosh. So in those situations, was there an opportunity for you in that meeting to say something? Was I the political will... dynamic such that it was, I mean, how did you handle that? Well, I can tell you that a few weeks later, the target was on me. And, mm. you know, in my preparation, I had so much information mm. and I've always been one to read, 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 and then really retain it. So I didn't need to look at notes. Right. And as I was being thrown, boom, fastball, fastball, question, question in front of everybody, I had the answers and I was saying, but here's the upside of that. It's up here. It's this is happening here. This happening there. And then I realized, you know what I had done? I stood up to the bully. Hmm. I stood up to the bully and he was done with me. He then moved on to somebody else in the room, right? So hopefully some people took note of that as be prepared, give the facts. It is what it is. Don't chastise me personally in front of all my colleagues, right? Right. Right. And I know that it got through to some people because there was a few people, one in radio promotion, one in video promotion that came up to me after the meeting and went, wow, man, you stood up. Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. That was that was impressive. And I just said, you know, I had decided, you know, weeks earlier that was not going to happen to me. Mm -hmm. Right. So preparation. Yeah. It was key, but also not backing down. Yeah. The other thing is that whole quality. And I, you know, some people refer to it. Well, that's my management style. That's not a management style. Being uh, a bully and trying to intimidate people is not because you may get some results because you scared the crap out of people. Be very short term though. Right. And, and it, be it became a revolving door because- People don't want to work within that space. Yeah. Not for very long. Yeah. So I don't know if you've seen the articles, but the investment bankers, you know, Goldman Sachs just had 
terrible reviews, basically pre-COVID and to where people are now. And on a scale of one to 10, you know, satisfaction of life is like a one or a two. How many people are in counseling? All of them, you know, do you have any life outside of work? No. How many hours of sleep are you getting? Four. I mean, it's crazy. Right. And in, in banking has been traditionally known as that's what you're getting into, but it seems like people aren't putting up with it anymore. And so now it's really, you know, it's being talked about in the wall street journal and among a lot of my friends who are in that space. And it's like, wow, it's been going on for so long, but now it's gotten even worse because of these SPAC deals, et cetera. And it's these poor people they're you know, they're in their mid to late twenties and they're just getting raked over the coals and, and they're being told, well, there's someone right behind you who would be willing to take your job. So well, that up. isn't the answer. You know, right. I mean, they're willing to stay if they're nurtured. You know, mm-hmm. my whole thing is whatever happened to that middle management, that mentorship that takes that intern, right? That builds them to something. This is not about in the work environment. It is not really about just throwing you at the deep end of the pool and see who survives. This is, this is not that if you want to build a team over a long-term have long-term always successful results, then you invest in those people. And that means sitting with them. I'll bring up reviews. A lot of people think that's very old school about reviewing people. And my thoughts are, and you know, I went up and down on this and had a couple people that, you know, really schooled me on that when I was starting to evaluate six month or yearly process with the employees at Sony Music, where we had to do evaluations. There was somebody that, that it always stuck with me that the easiest thing that you can do in an evaluation is just fantastic, fantastic, A plus plus, A plus plus on every line item. If you really care about that person and you really want them to grow, you need to accentuate the positives, but also point out the things that they need to work on to become better. Right. And those are the hardest things to deal with when you're sitting across from somebody and you really care about them. And I would tell them that I would say, you know, you may disagree with me on this or that when I'm pointing this out to you, but I'm telling you this because I care about you and I want you to go to the next level. Right. So I don't underestimate evaluations and, and constantly talking about growth. It's so similar to, I learn new things every day, 45 years in this business. I don't know everything. I learn new things every day. I love the fact that this business changes and evolves now at an extremely rapid pace. And some of my former colleagues, they can't leave the past. Wow. It was so great then. And wow, this streaming and wow, this playlist and this, and wow, you got to do things this way in the socials. Wow. Yeah, it is what it is. Yeah. So uh, I love the constant change. Right. Well, that's great. To me, it feels very similar to parenting in a way, right? Like you have to nurture your kids. You ha- And sometimes I feel like 
I forget that they're just little tiny humans and they don't know very much and you need to teach them and you need to coach them and give them the feedback and let them fail and let them learn and let them learn why it's important to have tenacity and all that. So very similar. It's really tough to take off the training wheels, but you've got to do it for, yeah. for their own good. You've got to let people do it. Yeah. So has there been a big miss or a big failure that you've had either as an entrepreneur or through the 45 years that you feel like, wow, I learned a lot from that. And what, what was that? Well, I think, I think the, the biggest note I would say is in, in dealing with so many different artists, you know, in all different genres is going into it, really assessing their wants and needs and I wouldn't call it a failure as much as something that it took me a while to identify. And that is when I want them to succeed more than they want to succeed. Mm, and, interesting. you know, it'd be very easy to say, well, it's work ethic, but it's much more than that. There are many, many things that will, you know, throw up the red flag to me. Whereas before I just was naive, I grew to understand that some of them just don't want it as much as some of the others. Mm. That's the part I couldn't get because when it comes to selling, marketing, promoting, you know, I'm an animal. I live it. I sleep with it every night mm -hmm. and I couldn't fathom that somebody wouldn't want to be successful. Right. And, you know, I, I think most of the artists that I would, you know, even mention that to their response would be, well, I do want to be successful, but I want to be successful on my own terms. That's but so interesting that, that you bring that up because for me, I mentor a lot of people or I love helping people. Mm-hmm. And I can identify really quickly now if someone really, really wants whatever they say they want or not. You can tell by what it is they say, what their excuses are, how hard they're working or not working. You know, there are some people when you say, hey, I think you should do X, Y, and Z. And then a week later, they're like, okay, I did X, Y, Z and A. And like, those are the people who really, really want it. And you want to put your time into people who are sort of really taking, taking heed of your expertise and your, you know, advice. Exactly. And, you know, it's good that you know that and you see that. And if they don't, it's very disruptive to everything because, you know, as I try to tell artists, you, you can run at the pace you want, which is, is that a mile an hour? Is that 10 miles in an hour? Is it 50 miles an hour? Um, because what we try to do is really have an incredible team. The team people could be a radio team, a publicist, you know, art and creative, and et cetera. And their ability to digest, make decisions, and run, as I call it, I did that interview. I did that interview. I did the social post. I did all that. Their ability to control the momentum of that team. Now I'm pretty inspiring to a team and I can have that core team, but you got to understand what I'm doing right now. It really is dictated the pace, the momentum 
can really be dictated by the work ethic of that artist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because a publicist that brings, you know, I got a New York Times interview. I got a Rolling Stone interview. I've got a People Magazine interview. And seriously, the artists that go, well, you know, I'm going to go on this hiking trip for the next, you know, <laughs> like that. Well, the publicist is not going to be really inspired to go and get more. No, they're not going to hustle for, for you. Yeah, they're not so, hustling for you again. So I would say the flop or failure is that early on, I wasn't able to identify it like I am now uh, that they're not going to be as hungry um, because a hungry artist that is a great artist and has the ability to go from the art piece that they make to the ability to understanding it is a business and they have to be involved. Mm -hmm. As one of my friends said, must be present to win. Uh, <laughs> you have to participate. So mm -hmm. if they're not participating, then it just never really works out. Yeah. Interesting. I like that perspective. All right, here's a zinger. What's the boldest thing you've ever said to a colleague and or a boss? I think it was, I'm going to really share this. When I was at Maverick and uh, I had been a contracted employee uh, within Sony Music from the late 80s. And in 2002 at Maverick, I chose to stand strong with the ownership and tell them that, you know, they already paid me very well. And that the only way I would stay was if they would make me a partner. Mm. And what happened over the coming months was, you know, offers for more money and so forth, of which I turned down, you know, because I was very strong on that. And mm. uh, as my attorney at the time would say, you sure you don't want to take the money? Uh, <laughs> that was pretty bold. And especially when you go back to 2002, 2003, you know, people were in this business can be really insecure. Like, what are you going to do? Right. Who's, you know, how are you going to earn a living? And uh, I said, you know, I'll make something happen. And here I have my company 18 years later. Wow. Yeah, that was an interesting time. If we take people back in time, that was right when, I mean, like 98, 96 to 98 is really when MP3 started coming out. Napster was on the scene. Everyone was trying to figure out DRM, digital rights management. Sure. I remember sitting in these meetings with all the labels. We would be in New York City. I was representing Sony Music and we were talking for hours on end about how are we going to protect the music? How are we going to make sure someone doesn't rip this off? How are we going to make sure that we don't, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I just thought, man, they're talking in circles. They're not moving fast enough. They're going to miss this. And then I remember one executive just straight out saying, eh, I don't think MP3s are a big deal. And I thought, oh my gosh, like sort of one of those old school mentalities that you alluded to. They just thought, well, this is how we've been doing it all along and and I was within the Warner system and I was hearing the same conversations yeah. and we were a joint venture and we had an encouraging boss in Madonna who would quote, you know, better to beg forgiveness than to ask permission within the Warner music group. So when you have that kind of support, so the Deftones, by the way, was one where we did, you know, the first live stream concert and 
we, you know, uh, developed uh, at the time they were referred to as the new media department. Remember that? Yeah. But yeah. we were basically going from a world of putting physical samplers in people's hands. Right. You know, when they came out of a show and there was so much waste and garbage and people would throw them away or what have you. And here was this great tool, the Internet. Mm. where you could push a button, have 100,000 people activated to hear your new song and go out and buy it. And, right. uh, you know, likes at Sony and Universal and Warner. And how do we control it, though? Oh, my God, you know? Yeah, Pe well, you know? people were scared. They'd been executives for 20, 30 years and they had sure. really big, cushy jobs and nice offices. And they were legitimately scared because they didn't know what was going on. And then, you know, half a year later, I was then doing a project for Warner Home Video and they were seeing the writing on the wall, what was happening with music. Yeah. And they too were sufficiently panicked because they were starting to see that that could happen to their business too. Okay. We're going to shift gears a little bit. Okay. Tell me about an aha moment you've had this past year, the year of COVID. Oh boy. I think an aha moment for me was... <laughs> About two years ago, we closed our physical office and I started having everybody work out of their home. And I went, wow, how blessed am I? You know, just, you know, how lucky. A lot of people have asked me, you know, last year and how was your business? And, you know, the touring business affects, you know, the artists so much and mm. the financials that come back to them, et cetera. But an aha moment was a lot of the artists got more comfortable with social media. A lot of artists got a little bit more comfortable getting in the studio and churning out songs and having a flow. Yeah. Uh, because they had to they had to fill that gap where they were no longer on the road last year. Right. It was like, wow, why are we all of a sudden so busy last year? And it was because. It was a new frontier for a lot of these artists that spend two to 300 days on the road, right? Well, and, and streaming revenue must have been a huge aha, uh -huh, right? Oh, yeah. Streaming revenue was was uh, brilliant last year. And a lot of our artists transitioned from, you know, the majority of their business, some of the older legendary artists, their business transcending from physical being the majority to streaming and digital. Right. So I would say that was pretty pivotal. Yeah. All right. So a year before COVID hit, you move your team, but you're a smaller, more efficient team, I would say, than a larger company. We've talked about team building and how important that is. Um, yeah. In the world of COVID now, where everyone's working remote, I mean, our friends at Warner Music probably aren't going back for, I don't know how long. Forever. I think next year now. <laughs> Yeah. next year. That's yeah. like, how does that affect the team dynamic? What are your thoughts on that? So here's my take on it. It's really going to hurt businesses, not just the music business, but business in general in a few different ways. If you go back to that conversation we were talking about, you and I and Barbara, right? And kind of after hours or going into somebody's office and, and basically talking through things and getting to a point, whether you call that, you know, I don't call that just coffee talk. I think that a lot of things 
you know, are worked out between people essentially talking after business hours. A meeting format is just that. People are reporting directly for this. I think ideas are stimulated when somebody actually may be having a drink in somebody's office after hours. I know that sounds very old school, but, you know, just like, what if we did this? What if we did that? And so I'll take you back in your mind, you know, look at, I represented the sales department at the work group, right? And Barb and you were two thirds of, you know, project management and all that. There were ideas, trust me, that came out of our conversations that we went and implemented and people went, wow, how they come up with that? Right. It wasn't necessarily done in that one hour structured Wednesday label meeting. Right. It was in the dugout while we were playing softball. That's right. And when right. you can't have somebody else's, hey, do you, you have a couple minutes for me? And you talk to that person, it just... If you take that out of the equation, I think you're potentially just really taken away from the maximum that can be done at a company. I think you really, yeah, it's going to be really tough to identify how much it's going to affect what percentage, right? It's sort of like this thing that people always get into. Well, if you treat your people better, how much percentage is it really going to give you, you know, in productivity? Immeasurable. I just know that a percentage of productivity is going to be lost because of that, that lack of opportunity. Right. Yeah. I think the last year people have just been working more probably, right? Because they're afraid they might lose their job. If they're not working, you're working at home. So you're always on, you're always working. And it's probably exhausting. And now people probably just feel really isolated. And like you're saying, you can do it for a year. You can do anything for a year or two. But what what are the long-term effects? I mean, I, I'm really, it'll be interesting to see what happens because there are some companies that are going back because they're seeing, wow, we're losing sort of that innovation. We're losing the iteration, the creativity, these meetings after the meeting conversations, right? Exactly. And I mean, you mentioned aha moment. And I mentioned a couple things, you know, as far as the business overall. But for me personally, you know, I've always been a people person. I enjoy it. I enjoy people's company. And for me, it has been very difficult, honestly, uh, to not do face to face meetings with artists and all of that. You know, I, I like to really have a good sense of, you know, their mission statement. So right. I, I can do the best job, right. but I love meeting with people. I just, and I miss it so much and I, I can't wait. Yeah. I know. Well, it'll happen soon enough. I mean, yes, seems like things are opening up and if not where you are, then you need to just come down and visit us down here in Orange County. Cause everything's been open the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I it's will. crazy. What advice do you have for your 30-year-old self looking back all these years? Yeah, um, and that would be where I was talking about, you know, bosses that intimidate, that I wish I would have stood up for myself a little bit more in the earlier years. Mm -hmm. I would say in between 30 and 35, actually, where, you know, I was pretty intimidated 
and I let myself get intimidated. And I, I don't know that anybody can really do the best that they can do for themselves and for a company when being intimidated. So, you know, I would have stood up more. Yeah. That's interesting. I actually stood up for myself during an internship when I was interning for Shaquille O'Neal. <laughs> I got fired. <laughs> oh man. I was like that's impossible. You're fired. Okay. Thank you. Let me just bring my own computer that I brought into work every day and schlep it out of your office. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was funny. That was really Pivotal early, moment. really yeah. early in my career. Oh my gosh. What is one thing that you have to see in a job candidate before you will hire them? Or I suppose the same goes for, you know, signing an artist or working with an artist. Yeah, it really is that willingness to, to listen and, you know, mutual respect. It's, it's like, uh, you know, I've been blessed to work with a lot of these rock and roll hall of fame artists and so forth. And it's, and it's funny because a lot of the younger artists think that they know Whereas, you know, some of the legends that I work with, it's more of a thoughtful conversation. They're experienced. They know that I'm experienced. Right. Uh, they are paying me for my experience and they're willing to listen. So listening, give people mutual respect. It's a timeless thing. Great. I love that. What you alluded to your mentor or one of your early mentors. There were quite a few, quite yeah. a few. But what, what are a couple of things that you learned from a mentor that has stuck with you? It, it's the whole package. When, when you talk about presentation, preparation, being able to join people together, you know, and certainly not segregate people. I have worked for people that loved internally at labels to have, you know, the sales department fight with the radio promotion department. They felt that that was a style, that internal mm. conflict. So, you know, getting back to, you know, the basics, the mentors that had a, a real big effect on me were all about bringing people together, being organized, not being afraid to make mistakes, try things, and learn together. What advice would you have for someone looking to get into the C-suite or onto a board? Whatever the business is, whatever the company is, immerse yourself in all the moving parts. And that could be different departments, different areas that all formulate the synergy, if you will, uh, of that company. It's so, so important to understand that. So you can't come in uh, one dimensional. You have to have an understanding. And I'll only make the analogy to a record company, but as I mentioned earlier, having a real understanding of the you know, press right side of things, having a real understanding uh, about the marketing efficiencies, uh, radio promotion, right? The sales department, all of these things. I'm, I'm going to say that you can dive down as deep as you can. The people that do those jobs specifically, run those departments specifically, are always going to be, you know, the experts in that area. 
but if you can't see how the spokes fit within the wheel, then you can't make the wheel turn. Yeah. Very similar to some of the other answers. It's like, try to get as much exposure across the organization as possible. Yeah. And you don't have to be an expert in the operations, but you should know something about each of the different departments. Yeah. And And how how it all fits in. And how it all fits in. Yep. Yeah. All right. We're going to go into the virtual insanity rapid fire. (laughs) All right. Uh Uh-oh. You have a favorite leadership or business book? The One Minute Manager. Good one. Favorite pastime? As I said earlier, music, but really sports, baseball specific. Really? Yeah. Who's your favorite team? Houston Astros. Oh, you're such a Texan. I know. A Texan at heart. I, I know. If you had an entire day with zero meetings, what would you do? A no work day would be definitely playing some sports of some kind. It may be a long hike. It may be, you know, working out in my garage, but definitely some sports activities. And when this pandemic is over, I love the movies, going to the movies, you know, enjoying family, you know, really enjoying family. That's what it's all about. Absolutely. What magazines or books do you read in your free time? New York Times, Washington Post, absolutely read Billboard. There's a book right now that I started reading called Cast, C-A-S-T-E. And I would recommend it to anybody. It's very thought provoking. It's very relevant with what's happening right now. Okay. I'll just say that that. on my list. Favorite dessert? You know, it would probably be key lime pie. (laughs) I was just in Florida. That sounds fantastic. I love that. Yeah. Favorite quote. I like the, you know, work hard, play hard. Uh, The one thing I like to always instill that, you know, when people will talk about the word luck and I've been very lucky and very blessed, uh, but it was a quote my mother would always say, which is if you work really hard, you create your own good luck. So I love that. So I would say that. Yeah. What was your mom's name? Hazel. Hazel Crochel. Yes. I love that. Okay. Yes. Anything else you want to add? Well, I just thank you so much for having me. I love what I do. So I would say to anybody, don't just chase the money. The money will come if you're really doing what you love and you're successful. Everything that you ever want in life will come to you. Well, thank you, Fred. Thank you so much. This was so great. I'm so, so excited that you were available to do this. Thank you. All right, sweet. Love to you you. and your family, okay? Thank you. You too. All right. Bye-bye. This is the Mentor DNA Podcast, and I appreciate you tuning in. Please visit mentordna.io for more info on my friends and musings I have from our conversations. Stay tuned for another great episode next week. Talk to you soon. Amor Boutique Hotel is a special place my family and friends love to visit in Sayulita, Mexico. A quick and safe 35-minute shuttle from Puerto Vallarta and you're on the beach enjoying the most quaint and uniquely designed resort. 
The first minute I walk into our villa and take in the gorgeous decor featuring antique wooden doors and windows, Turkish lamps, and artisan-crafted mosaic floors and ceilings, I immediately feel myself relax to take in Amour Boutique's beauty. This hidden spot has drawn surfers, deep-sea, and spearfishing lovers for decades. The expansive ocean views and five-minute walk into town for an authentic Mexican village filled with exquisite foods and shopping make it really hard to leave. Visit AmorBoutiqueHotel.com and tell them Mentor DNA sent ya.